take our Bibles today, and um, we're continuing in our study on how to read your Bible, and uh, we're moving into, we've got a couple, let's put it this way, we've got a couple things we want to cover uh, here before we're done with the series, and one of those is we want to know how to read our Bible in terms of how does it affect you, what are positive things that come about from reading your Bible properly. And then we're also going to look at what happens when you don't. And actually, the last part of this outline, and then another page I didn't give you today, talks about what happens when you don't read the Bible properly. And we will eventually get to that after our Bible conference. And then I want to take a little bit of time, and I want to try to address the question about uh, how do you know what's for you? How do you know what's for you? We sometimes, uh, sometimes where we read the Bible sort of the way we do, we simply say, well, if Paul wrote it, or Peter or John, well, then it's for us. But that's not absolutely always the case. And on top of that, we're going to find as we look at some of those things. Hello? Hmm. Let's unplug and try that again. There we go. There we go. Okay. I don't know what was going on. Anyway, but uh, we want to try to answer the question, how do you know what part of the Bible's for you? And, uh, but that's not today's study. That'll be down the road sometime later in the book of March. So how to read your Bible, part five. As we've been saying, and we've got, this is a review of where we've been over the last month, read it in a normal manner. Do not read your theology into it. Do not read it with special rules. You can apply special rules that say, hey, if it's prophecy, then I don't, then I don't expect it to really happen. Okay, I kind of allegorize prophecy, and allegorize is a fancy word meaning I make it mean something other than what it actually says. Okay, and then I read it historically and grammatically, and uh, we went over some examples of that last week. Uh, some people might have thought that was a little bit tedious, but I tell you, when I all I can say is from somebody that comes and reads uh, Hebrew and reads Greek when I'm studying um, grammatically, just is overwhelming. But my wife will tell you once in a while that she picks up a Bible and she reads it in English and then she will say, it seems to say this. And she says, is that what the, you know, is that, is that a good rendering? And I'll say, actually it doesn't. So sometimes, and I'm not, I do not want in any way make you doubt or not have confidence in reading an English Bible. But sometimes you're going to have English translations where the translator is trying to give you their impression and They've got an idea that it means this, and as a result, they don't really represent what the grammar actually tries to push uh, sometimes. So that's why we did all that. This is where we've been, some basic things. And you can, you can read even an English Bible somewhat grammatically, especially if it's a more literal, more word-for-word, -word, more formal translation like the New American Standard or the ESV or the King James. Those were all a little bit more formal uh, translations in that way. So what happens? <clears throat> what happens when we re read the Bible in this way, when we pay attention to these things? Well, we're going to start out with a verse that I bet some of you learned back when you were a kid. Uh, it's not a verse we quote a lot in our church, but it's a good one. It's in Psalm 119. So look over in Psalm 119 with me for a moment. Does anybody know anything special about Psalm 119? <laughs> Interesting facts about Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter, verse by verse in the Bible. That's right. So each section, each section is eight verses long, and each one of those sections uh, that uh, all starts, every verse in that section starts with the same Hebrew letter. And if you've got a, if you actually have a decent Bible, they actually probably put the Hebrew letter as a heading above that, so you can actually see how the Hebrew letter letter is pronounced, but also what the Hebrew letter is. Each one of those also, every verse uses a different word for the word of God. It may say word, it may say uh, your your speech, it may say your statutes, it may say your commands, it may say your laws, but it uses each one of them, uses a different word uh, with reference to God's word uh, in this regard. And in Psalm 119, as, as uh, the psalmist here is writing, talking about this, he makes a statement that, again, 
probably most of us are very familiar with. Psalm 119 and verse 105. How many of you know this verse? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And we can look at that, and the easy thing to do with that is to say, well, that's the Old Testament. And you know what? He clearly is talking about the Old Testament and the law. I mean, he is. But here's a question for you. Is the fact that's stated in that verse, is it any less true of how the Word of God informs us? No. That's still a valid truth. God's revelation to us also, it actually sheds light on where we're going in life. I mean, how many times have you sat in your Christian experience in a Bible study or in a church service somewhere, and somebody's opened the Word of God, and as they're going through it, you ever felt like they're talking directly to you and your immediate circumstances? Yeah. And you're kind of like, do they know what's going on right now? <laughs> But it's not that. It's just the fact that the Word of God, because of what it can do, that it can shed such light on where we are. And in shedding light in that way, it can be helpful in helping you and I see where we are, what we need to do. How do you respond in that type of a circumstance? So, just starting off there, one of the things it does, it can give, it can give us light for our life. It can give us light for our life. It can give us an understanding of Christ. It can outfit us for God's purpose. It can help us make distinctions, and it can help us grow. And so these are some of the things that, that uh, we want to do. We already looked here at Psalm 119, 105. So I'm not following my slides. I always struggle with those. But turn with me to John 5. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the other things that the Word of God can help us do, and I think that this is this statement is very important for us to understand. Again, this is a reference to the Old Testament is what it's referring to. But there's lots of Christians that are like, oh, I want to get to know God better. And I want to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ better. But the one thing they don't ever think about then is they're like waiting for like a beam of light to come out of heaven. They're waiting for some great experience. They want to go with Ben and Chris and they want to hike up Mount Adams. And at the top, hopefully that God will shout to them, here I am or something. I don't know. Not to, that's not why those guys go up there, but I'm just saying maybe there are people that want to go up on a mountain and they want, they're, they're, they're hoping that God's going to give them some experience. But you know the first place you ought to turn if you want to start getting to know God? You ought to turn to God's word. And notice what Jesus says, John chapter 5, these are just out from the mouth of Jesus. Verse 33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness which I receive, it's not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Am I in the right? For, oh, I, I put in way down too, down too low here. I thought I was, I'll just keep reading. Verse 35. He was a lamp that was burning and was shining. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, they bear witness of me, what the Father has, has that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me, You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Why does he say you, you, you're not hearing his voice? Well, because when God has spoken, and in fact, can you think of some times, sometime in the New Testament when God spoke? Okay, sometime during the life of Jesus. When he was baptized. Jesus is coming up out of the water, the Spirit descends on him, and there's this voice out of heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in him I am pleased. There's another time that disciples get to see this when they're on the mount, but it's only three of the disciples. And then later in John 12, there's also a voice that comes out of heaven, and it says, this is my Son, listen to him, or hear him. So the Father had spoken, but you know what people always were thinking when that happened? It thundered. It was thundered. In other words, God's voice is speaking, but they're not listening. They don't actually hear God's voice. They just think that they're listening to thunder. Don't, by the way, go out and think, well, when there's a good lightning storm out here, that I should go out and maybe I'm going to hear God's voice in the thunder. But that, but they, God literally was speaking, but to them, all they could perceive was thunder. And I think they, they don't perceive it because, and this is, this is driving to the point, when he says, you've not here heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form, 
verse 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you. It's not comfortable. These were people that were students of the word, but the, they didn't let the word abide in them. They didn't take it to heart. And so he says, it does not abide in you, for you do not believe in him whom he sent. Verse 39, here it is. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that bear witness of me. So Jesus is saying, you know what? If you'd read those scriptures, those scriptures talk about me. They bear witness to me. They bear witness to what I'm supposed to be doing now, but they, they show me what I was doing in the past. Most of the time in the Old Testament, when we have God speaking or God showing up, most of the time it is God the Son, who, who we popularly would say is the Lord Jesus, but he, he didn't become Jesus until he was born from Mary because Jesus is the name of his human nature. He didn't become human until he was born of Mary. It's God the Son. He was also called the Holy One of Israel in the Old Testament. And he says, those Old Testament scriptures, they talk about me. And of course, at that time, the New Testament hadn't been written, but now do we have New Testament scriptures that tell us about him? Yes. So if you want to get to know God, if you want to get to know God the Son, it should start by actually reading what the Word of God tells us about him. Because what this is going to do is it's actually going to create a framework within which we can understand who he is. Because there's all kinds of people out there that'll tell you, well, I'll tell you who Jesus is, and they'll give you their opinion about who they think Jesus is. But if you study the word of God, you're going, that's your opinion, because your opinion over here is, your opinion is this. And what the Bible says about Jesus is this. Did you get the illustration? This is square. This is round. They don't fit. They don't work. There are lots of people that have opinions about who Jesus is. And if you turn to the word of God, it's going to inform you so that when you do experience things in life, you have a lens through which to interpret those events. So the scriptures, if you read the Bible in the way that we've been talking about, not only is it a light unto your path, but it also, as he says here, it also can provide you an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. It can also equip you. Second Timothy chapter three. Very, very popular verse again about the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verse 16 to begin with, it says, All Scripture is inspired or literally God-breathed, is what it says, and it is profitable. He says the Word of God's profitable. It's beneficial. It's going to provide you something you need. And it's going to be profitable for, and he gives us three things for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And this, is it, is it used of what? I have in my Bible, it says doctrine. Doctrine, yeah. It's the same word. Doctrine's just an old English word for, for teaching or instruction. Okay. And then in verse 17, it says all of those things, all of that, is so that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, number one, it can outfit us for God's purpose because it provides us teaching. And that word that, that Stanton was just asking about, uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time working on this today, but that word for teaching or doctrine is, is the Greek word didaskalia, and it's doctrine that you don't put into practice. But it's doctrine that is true. It's doctrine that tells you about the way things have worked or are going, uh, and that you can relate to those. And I just put up three examples here. God, that's doctrine. Tells you who is God. Tells you all kinds of things about God. Some of those things have implications for how you live, but it tells you about God. It tells you about creation. Do you practice creation? In fact, do you practice God? No. But if there are certain things, let's put it this way. If in understanding God, can it affect the way you live? Yes. So we were using an example the other night at our Bible study down in Mattawa, talking about people praying and people, they don't understand prayer. They don't understand faith because they think if you just have enough faith, it'll happen. So if you pray, God, Give me a million dollars, and I've got faith that you'll give me a million dollars. Is God going to give me a million dollars? Probably not, because one of the things he does not want you to do is he doesn't want you to replace him 
with a craving for stuff. He doesn't want you to pursue riches. He's not saying that you need to run from riches, but you should not be pursuing it. You should not be setting your, your sights on being rich. And let's put it this way. Every one of us, I always tell you this, every one of us in here is rich. Because I don't think any of us here are worried about whether we're going to have a roof over our houses, over our heads next year, or whether we're going to be able to eat next year. That's not a thing that I think any of us, for the most part, really are worried about. And to me, that would be a good definition of rich. Because remember, there's a lot of people in the world, they don't know where they're going to sleep tonight, and they don't know if they're going to have anything to eat the rest of the day, or tomorrow, or the rest of the week. So just put that in perspective a little bit. That would be doctrine. If you understood who God is, and he's righteous, and he's all-sufficient, you understand that? Does that inform your life? It does. But... What you're doing is really learning about God. Creation. You don't really practice creation, but it's something you really can appreciate because it tells you some more about God. Angels. Do you really practice angels? No. Because you can't ask for angels. You could ask. I mean, you could, but there's nothing, no, no verse in the Bible that says ask for angels. Jesus was promised that, but not us. So those are doctrines. Those are things that are important. By the way, just as a quick aside, I think one of the reasons that it's good for us to understand something about angels is it reminds us it's not all about us, <laughs> which is sometimes a little thing that we struggle with. We think everything God does is about us, but some of it's about angels. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians, some of what God's doing with us right now is actually about teaching angels something about himself. Okay. Secondly, it tells us that the next thing, let's go back there in 2 Timothy 3. It's, first of all, it's for teaching. Second of all, it's for reproof. The New American Standard has the word reproof. That's simply a word meaning to prove or to convince a person that something is a certain way. And it normally has a negative connotation that it proves that there's guilt. It proves that you're off track. You're supposed to be going this way. You finally pulled your compass out of your backpack and we are way over here. Keep this thing up. You are never going to make it to your destination and you're going to be lost. See, so the word of God can show us when we're off track. Show us when we're off track. That's right. That's right. So it tells us, it tells us that men will... Yeah. I don't have COVID, but I ate some almonds, and now they're... Thank you. I had the same problem. I ate those almonds, and then I was coughing up a storm. So it tells us when we deviate from God's truth. Now, I want to give you an example right out of this passage here. Let's go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And here's a couple of people that veered off course. They didn't cut a straight course in what God wanted. He actually tells Timothy back in verse 15, cut a straight course. That word handling accurately the word of truth in NASB literally is cut a straight path. Make it clear. And then he says, and avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will only lead to un un more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. And yet, as it goes on, it says, Nevertheless, verse 19, the firm foundation of God's having has ha, stands having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So in other words, sometimes it's going to help you see that there are people that are going away from the truth and say, oh, the resurrection's already happened. And the significance of that is, is that people are going to go, well, the resurrection already happened. Well, then where does that leave us? It leaves us only then, if you follow through this on the rest of Scripture, with what we would call a general resurrection of judgment in the future, which means you're going to stand to be judged. And yet we're not going to stand to be judged. We're not resurrected to a resurrection of judgment. We are resurrected, as Jesus said, to a resurrection of life. Jesus said there's two kinds of resurrection, a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. And if you have not believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're trusting in yourself or church or being good or reading the Bible or whatever it is, guess what? You're going to face a resurrection to judgment. But if you want to face, come into a resurrection to life, you need to believe Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. That's it. He took care of it. It's done. It's settled. Okay. So it shows us then when we deviate, when we go astray, if we pay attention, we're reading the word of God, we're going to go, wait a second, that is not where I'm supposed to be. 
Word of God's telling me this, but I'm going this way. And so you're, you could, could be like these two men here, and you could be deviating in that. It might also show us, back in, looking back in chapter 1, where Paul tells Timothy, gives him this charge. <clears throat> back in chapter 1 in verse, uh, let's go to verse 8. He says, therefore, let's go back to read verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or cowardice, but of power and of love and of a saved attitude. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering in the gospel according to the power of God. Just to put it in perspective, when Paul tells this to Timothy, where is Paul? He's in prison. Specifically, he is on, he's on death row. Now, if you've got this guy that's been your, let me use the word mentor, I don't know if that's the best word to use, but let's say he's your mentor, and that guy's locked up over in Rome in prison, and he's not just in prison, but he's on death row, you might think, I don't know that I want to go down that path, because I don't know that I want them to chop my head off. Now, the difference is, Paul was a Roman citizen, so they were going to behead him. That sounds gruesome to us, but that's fast. Timothy was not a Roman citizen. Do you know how Timothy actually ended up dying according to church history? He was beaten to death by the citizens of Ephesus. About 10 years after Paul writes this, he is drug outside the city and the people beat him to death with clubs. That, that's drawn out. That takes a little. That's not fast. Nonetheless, that's the way he died. And if you put that together, a person could then be ashamed. Now, ashamed has different connotations, but the idea is you even just the idea of backing away at I don't know that I want to. I don't know that I want to be known as a Christian. I don't want to talk about being a Christian too much. I don't want to deal with it. And you know what? All of us here. Are there any of you that are worried that if you're at work, or if you run down to the store or the post office, or you're talking to people around town and you tell them you're a Christian, and you tell them you know the only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus Christ. That's it. Are you really worried that they're going to throw you in jail? Are you worried that they're going to beat you up for it? Are you worried that they're going to maybe put you down and chop your head off? See, those aren't things we're even worried about. We're more, we're more worried that, well, that, that person might not want to talk to me anymore at the grocery store or talk to me at the post office or talk to me at work. My boss might make my life a little bit miserable, might start piling more work on me or something. But we don't, we're not even in that situation. And so here's a, a situation here uh, where, hey, if you're being ashamed, you come to this and you're going, I should not be ashamed of the testimony because the word of God tells me I shouldn't be ashamed. Shouldn't be ashamed of the testimony. And it's going to correct those things. This is the other thing. So it's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for reproof, showing us where we're off. But then it also shows us how to correct. And right there here in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Does a, does a spirit make you cowardly? Does he make you ashamed? Does he make you kind of tuck your tail between your legs and kind of hide behind the, in the back? Because you don't want people to know you're a Christian? You don't want to talk about it? No, that's not what the spirit does. The spirit, actually, we can look at a lot of passages. We can, I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul says, man, when we came, our gospel came with power and by the Holy Spirit. So where would timidity come from? It comes from another spirit. Who is that? It's Satan. Because what is, what is one of Satan's best tools in his arsenal with us? Fear. Fear. And for Timothy, it was fear that he might be jailed and have his head lopped off or be beat up or whatever, like Paul. For us, that fear might not be that extreme. It's just fear of being made an outcast a little bit. You're not, you don't get to be in the A crowd anymore. <laughs> Maybe you don't even make the B crowd. <laughs> Whatever it might be. But that cowardice. But then it shows you how to correct that. So look with me over in chapter 2 here of uh, 2 Timothy. You can't do this all the time, but to me it's interesting when you have these statements made. It's nice to try to look in that book, because remember we were telling you about looking at context? It's nice sometimes to look at the book and see if there's some things that illustrate it right there. And so he tells us that the word's profitable. Look in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 2. 
You therefore, my son, be strong in or by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, what is one of the other times that Paul says you and I need to be strengthened? Ephesians 6, strengthened so that we can do what? So we can put on the armor of God. We need to be strengthened to put on the armor of God. Well, is there any armor that's going on here? It doesn't mention it, but he is going to use some terminology. I'm going to skip, skip over verse 2 for the moment, but he says in verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a, what's he say? Good soldier of Christ. And then he talks about being a soldier. When do you soldier as a Christian? When you're getting into a fight. With whom do we fight? Who's the only individual with whom we fight in Scripture? Yeah. Does God tell you to fight with your sin nature? No. I don't. I hate to use this terminology, but with your sin nature, he tells us essentially play dead. You know that's what he says? He says count yourself to be dead to the sin nature, but alive unto God in Christ. And you need to believe that he will give you victory in there. So you play dead to the sin nature, but Satan... He comes at you with fiery darts and a wrestling match, and he comes in there, and you need to be ready to defend yourself. And it's then that you soldiers. So when Paul tells Timothy, you need to suffer hardship, and you need to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus, it's because Satan is dealing, or because Timothy is dealing with the danger of fear, timidity, and shame. And he needs to be strong so that he can actually function as a soldier. Paul doesn't have to tell him put on the armor. Timothy knows that. But he's just reminding him, Timothy, it's time for you to soldier, guy. You've, you've been through this with me. Timothy had spent a lot of time under Paul's tutelage, being, learning all these things. And Paul can just tell him, hey, you need to be ready to face Satan here. You need to deal with this. Don't just lay down and let him roll over you. Okay. Um, some of the other things then, look back there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and the last one that he mentions there in that list. So we've looked at three of, or three of these. We looked at the fact that it's that is profitable for teaching or doctrine. We gave examples. God, creation, angels, there's lots of other things fall in there. It's for reproof. Shows us when we're astray. Shows us when we've gone off course. And thirdly, it shows us correction. That is, how do you fix that? Well, if you're, if you're allowing Satan to attack you, you need to soldier. You need to put on the armor. We've looked at this idea. But then the last one, and for training in righteousness. Child training in righteousness. How to live righteously. How do we as believers live righteously? How do we go on and do that? Um, uh, I was just trying to look for my, trying to look for my other statement. Yeah, I... Let's stay right here. Let's go back to chapter 1. I've got a statement over there in Titus, but I want to stay here in 2 Timothy. I was looking for the one afterwards. There it is, 2, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Right after telling him to not be ashamed, he then does something that I think is the wise thing to do when you're dealing with believers, and that is you point them to who they are in Christ. And so he says... Um, at the end of verse 8, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he's given to us in Christ Jesus. See, that's where this holy calling is, and that's where his purpose is, and that's where his grace is extended to us, is in Christ. And that's that calling. Paul over in the book of Philippians calls it the upward call of God in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit up there saying, up here. He's leading you up. He's calling you to come up to your position and set your mind up there. That's instruction in righteousness. And I know, I, I think I made this comment on Wednesday night at Bible study. People might think that we spend a lot of time in our church talking about being in Christ. Josh has been going over the, the, who we are in Christ during his class on Sunday mornings here. It never gets old. It never gets old. I learned, I remember, I've told you this, but I learned the first time about who I was in Christ. I think I was about 20 years of age. I think I was 20. First time I'd actually ever really seen this. And I grew up being taught the Bible, but I don't ever remember anybody saying, you're in Christ and this is what it looks like. We probably read verses about being in Christ. 
But it never, in any way, was it ever connected. But God used a, a man from Colorado Springs that wrote this little this little booklet, Principle of Position. I read was reading that book, and I was just like, oh, oh, oh. you ever do that with something? You're just, how have I never seen this before? This is so clear. This is so plain, and you're looking at the Word of God. And you know what? It's never gotten old. I've never gotten to the point going, yeah, yeah, I've all heard about being in Christ. Yeah, I know that. It is the foundation of the way we live our Christian life is knowing who you are in Christ. And Paul says, we have this, this call, this holy calling that calls us uh, to this. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. I, I, we could spend more time in there. I do want to look at this one passage over in Titus. I'm trying to stay in 2 Timothy, but I have to look at this because to me, this is the epitome of it. I'll just read through these verses again. This is, this is instruction in righteousness. And by the way, this is a good place to demonstrate that grace is what trains us in Christian living today, not law. Law does not train us in Christian living. Notice what he says in Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared. It is saving towards all men. It is instructing us or training us as children to say no to ungodliness and worldly cravings. Because those things don't match grace. Ben was asking the question in the last hour. Worthy. It's an it's idea, it's a balance. Balance scales. The Bible says, I'm dead to the sin nature. But I go out and I live in the sin nature. Boom, scales are out of balance. They don't match. But if I'm living as one that's dead to the sin nature, see, that matches who I am in Christ. That matches that. And so likewise, grace says, this is what God's given you. So why would you act worldly or ungodly? It doesn't match grace. And so he says, saying no to worldly lusts, cravings, or saying no to ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live sensibly or with a saved attitude, righteously and godly in this present age, godly being a manner that a lifestyle that honors God, and then eagerly or looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Kind of goes back to something we talked about in the last hour. As we're looking forward, if you're looking forward to the rapture, that affects the way you live right now. And grace teaches you to be looking forward to the rapture. Grace points you to who you are in Christ, but it makes it encourages you to look forward to the rapture. And that's a balance. So, training in righteousness. In fact, a lot of what we do in our church, not everything, but a lot of what we do in our church is we trust teaching you how God has made provision for you to live righteously. Okay. Now, from there, then I want you to look down. Um, oh, that's not that's not where I want to go. I want you to look down here in verse seventeen because I want to tie a couple things together. All that instruction in the Word of God, he says, helps us so that the man of God may be equipped. And then he takes that word "equipped" and, and strengthens it because he takes the same word "equipped" in the Greek and he adds a preposition on the beginning, saying "fully equipped." Equipped. Fully equipped. What chapter again? This is 2 Timothy 3 and verse 17. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 17. It equips you. It thoroughly equips you. Now I made a, I, I used an illustration earlier uh, thinking about some, we've, there's, there's some of you here at church that have traipsed up Adams and Rainier and different things like that. And, uh, you know, you probably could put on, you know, some kind of heavier boots and put on a good jacket, and you probably could traipse up there, and you probably would survive up Adams, I, would, I presume. I'm not going to say Rainier would be a good thing to do that with. But there's a difference between being equipped and thoroughly equipped, equipped with the right things. And I remember Chris talking to me about, you know, putting gaiters and such on like that, what a difference that made, in, especially when you're walking and stuff, when it kind of gets a little damp and slushy and you're going through all of that. And so you could be equipped. Yeah, I could make it up there and back. I get back and all I can do is I'm just disgusted with how ill-equipped I was, <laughs> if that were the case. Or you could be thoroughly equipped, fully equipped. You got everything you need so that you can go up and back. And yeah, you may be sore because you worked hard, but, but you had what you needed. He says the Word of God does that for us. See, if you take all four aspects of what the Word of God is profitable for, what that does then is it equips you for the things, what does he say at the end of verse 17? 
equips you for every good work. See, God's got good works planned for you. But he doesn't expect you to do those good works by your own effort. He expects you to be equipped by what you learn from the word of God so that you learn how to rely on God. You know what to expect from God. You know the things that God's doing, what he has done, what he will do. And you're able to put that together and say, this is a situation. He's allowed me to come to this mountain in my life. Now, am I just going to stop here and say, this is it? I can't. I can't go around it. I can't go around the mountain this way because it drops off into the sea. I can't go around the mountain this way. It drops off at cliffs or something like this. I got to go over it, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just sit here. Or am I going to take the equipment that God gives me spiritually and actually trudge through and make it to this other point that he has, this, these good works that he has? Everybody get that? No, I kind of used a kind of a metaphor in there, but uh, okay. Um, trying to think of some of the other other ones that I. Oh, here's one. Here's one of the ones in this passage that the Word of God tells us that uh, I think is a really good one for us. Second Timothy chapter two. You've got these guys that are deviating from where they're supposed to be, and the tendency, and I've been there. The personal tendency in life is for us to argue, debate, sit down and try to argue and debate with these guys. And uh, Paul tells Timothy, don't get wrapped up in that. And notice what he does say to do. This is a positive. This is a positive instruction in righteousness. And this is something that actually gets you ready for a good work, to understand this. So he says, uh, and because um, oh, this is very interesting, go to verse 21, just the way he says, states this, because he's going to use the same language he uses down in verse 17 of chapter 3. Therefore, if a man cleanse himself from these, that is, from people that just want to debate and argue with you, then he is a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for, to the master, prepared for or outfitted, he says, for every good work. Same language that he's using. So if you read what the Word of God says about these people and how they deviate and what God wants you to do, you're going to be prepared for the good works God wants you to do. So he Flee then that youthful lust. And those youthful lust here is the lust that I can beat these guys. I can take them on. I'm smart. I can argue these guys to my position. And pursue, what you should do is pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, instead of taking on and arguing and debating with people that want to argue and debate, he says, Focus on believers that want to call on the Lord from a pure heart. Focus on believers that want to grow. You're going to find out after a while that you're going to run into some believers and you get the impression they want something. And you're thinking, oh, I'm going to help them show it. And you start to show it to them and you find out, no, all they want to do is debate and argue back and forth. And you're going to spin your tires a lot and you're going to just get stuck arguing and debating and they will never come to a conclusion. In fact, that's exactly what Paul, Paul tells Timothy. They're never going to come to that conclusion that you want them to. So he says, you know what you should do? You should find those believers that, that are calling on the Lord out of a pure heart and spend time with them and encourage them rather than trying to mentally arm wrestle these other people. We've been over that study before. Paul, it's something that, well, I, I used to get myself stuck in this a lot more. I've learned to back off this. But there is something about a youthful lust of wanting to argue and debate and argue and debate and argue and debate. And Paul several times tells Timothy and Titus both, just stay away from that. Stay away from that. Don't go down that path. Because you know what happens when you start going down that path? Paul actually tells you, you become fleshly. <laughs> You don't think you become fleshly, but you're actually resorting to your flesh. You know why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is peace. It is not contentious. It's not debating. It doesn't argue. Okay. Uh, next thing I want to look at. One of the other things that the Word of God does. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12. Again, verse most of us know. Most of us know this statement. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, for the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrows, and it is a judge or a critic of, we have this, these two expressions, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
In other words, the Word of God, as you read it, is able to help you understand the difference between what God has said, this is what the Word of God says, and then it help, helps you to evaluate the things that are running through your mind that kind of turn the heat on up there, get you mentally excited. Oh, this is interesting. And you get at that. Or even the last part, things about which your heart is really, well, that's the first one, is enthusiastic, but then the intentions, the things in your heart that you're thinking you're going to do. He says the Word of God helps you do that. Now let me give you an illustration from the book of Hebrews. Turn to chapter 13. And I believe this is a really good example of this. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 9. Do not be carried away by various and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by... What's the next word? Foods. Though, he says, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. What does he mean for your heart to be strengthened by grace and not through foods? What, what does that mean? Well, if you were part of Jewish culture, a big part of what you did involved taking sacrifices up to the temple and you went through and you said what you wanted to say to God. Maybe you were confessing something. Maybe you were praising God or giving thanks. And the priest laid his hands on the things and there was slitting and there was blood and they burned these animals and you ate some of it and the priest ate some of it and you shared all of this. And there's all these foods. And that's what he means by foods here. He's not talking about, oh, you got to give up Big Macs or something like that. He's talking in the context here about food at the temple. So you and I don't relate to this because part of our ritual, we don't really have ritual. God, really, the church largely is primarily ritual-free. He has not prescribed rituals that we have to go through, a liturgy that we do every week. We don't have that. Some churches do. I don't think the Bible supports that. But here for these people, part of their ritual as Jews was this thing of going up there. And I just think every week you'd hear people up there singing. You'd hear these singers. Remember, David established these courts of singers that would sing. And there was the smell of food, this food that's being cooked up there at the temple, and all of us, and eating them, and all of these things. It's like, oh, I love to participate in this, and now I can't go do that anymore, and I miss that. And you and I might not appreciate that. But you know what? We, on Sundays, we get together and we have a potluck downstairs and we share that food. And, you know, when we were told that, you know, we can't get together and we got to wear face masks and we can't have potlucks together and all that because we will all get COVID and we'll all get sick and we'll all die or something like this. And I'm not trying to mock that. I'm just trying to say these are the kind of things that were going on. Is there anybody that missed that? Is there anybody that missed? And is it because, oh, I love the food. Hey, the food's to me is kind of neither here. You know what I love, what I miss? I'm a sitting there with a plate of food, sitting across from you, talking to you, eating the food, talking, find out what's going on in your life. This is one of the reasons I try to move around and sit by different people because I want to find out. Oh, I talked to this person last week. I want to find out what's this person doing now. Enjoy, and you miss that. And when you're told you can't share that, you miss that kind of fellowship. These people miss this experience. And so you can see how their hearts would be enthusiastic about, I, I want to go to the temple because I want the food. I want to participate in all of that up there at the temple. It's not so much about eating it, but it's about the participation in it. And he says, you know what? We need to be strengthened by grace. Essentially, not really by going through a ritual. And the word of God's going to help me come to that and say, it's actually going to be the grace I have in Christ. That's what I need. It's not a ritual. It's not something every week I can, I know that they're going to tell me this, I'm going to smell this smell at this time, and I'm going to eat this thing at this time, and ah, it's just the experience. It's not going to be that. Do you see? Do you, do you understand that? The Word of God informs us on that. See, when we're reading the Word of God the way we're, it's going to help us to see that's not the way God set it up for us. That's not the way that God set it up for us. Um. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, very quickly. 1 Peter chapter 2. We have a, a statement over here that's actually a command. Uh, some of us, we, some, we, we've sometimes not always translated this. He says, verse 2, 
It says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. He's not saying like babes do long. He says, like a babe, you should long or you should crave for the logical pure milk so that by it you may grow. I've got a grandson. And take a guess, he's three months old. When he's hungry and he has dyed his milk, guess what he does? <laughs> Starts getting fussy. And right away when he's at, there's a certain kind of fuss that he makes. You, you know it's not because he's uncomfortable, but you know it's because he's hungry. And he craves that milk. Peter tells us, like, that, like a babe would do that, you need to crave this. He calls it in there, in our... Um, My Bible says the pure milk of the word. Literally, it's just, it's the logical milk. It's not the word word. It's the logical milk. Because you need to feed your, your spirit, your logic. And one of the reasons for that is, and we're not going to demonstrate it this morning, but if you go through 1 Peter, Peter uses the word soul quite a bit because these people are having a soul problem. Their souls are hurting. And you can tell that when you go back to chapter 1. And he says they need this truth because what does truth do for you? Let's go back up into chapter 1 here. Look back up to chapter 1 and look with me at verse 22 as an example. Since you, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from a pure heart. But notice what he says. You have purified your hearts by obeying the truth. See, so they had to learn the truth. This is one of the reasons that you want to know the Word of God because you get this Word, the Word of God, and it's going to help you Purify your, your soul so that when you actually love the brothers, you're doing it for the right reason. It's not like, oh, I just like getting together with them because I don't like hanging out at home. That's boring. I just like kind of hanging out with other people because that's fun. If I'm at home, I'm watching TV or I'm on my phone doing this, and that's boring. I want to get together and just hang out with people. No, you get together and it's a sincere love because you're like, I want to be with them because I want to participate with them. I want to engage with them. I want to minister to them. I want to be used in their lives. I want God to use them in my life. Would, see, that would be a sincere love. Not just, I want to get together because it's fun. See, when I was growing up as a kid, we didn't have church quite exactly like this. We had a Sunday night service, and we didn't get together. We didn't have fellowships a lot. Like every fifth Sunday, we had a dinner together. And I remember a lot of Sunday nights, you know, we'd go over to the Wilhite kids or over to the Tucker kids and we'd say, hey, ask your mom if they'll invite us over for ice cream. Now, it wasn't really that we wanted to go eat ice cream. We had ice cream at our house. You know what we wanted to do? We wanted to get together so we could go over to their place and all run around and play outside and have fun. Now, kids, we just wanted to get together and play. There was nothing about fellowship. And so I'm just trying to use that as an illustration when we're actually purifying our souls by obedience to truth, we want to get together. We want it to be more than just that we're hanging out and not particularly caring about other people. We want to do it because we want to care for other people. And we want to be together with them in that regard. And there we go. I just had to, I was trying to think if we, <laughs> if we covered everything, and I think we had. So anyway, hopefully, I know we, 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 we covered a lot of ground, but I'm just really trying to just illustrate. And, and do you have verses that probably tell us the value of the word of God for you that I didn't include? Sure. I'm just trying to give you some illustrations that when you read the Bible properly, the Bible has value for you because the Bible's going to show you how God equips you. The Bible's going to tell you what God has in store for you. The Bible, as it's going through these things, is going to help you discern between the things that you're getting excited about, but really what God would like you to be excited about. Things like that. The word of God's, but you have to read it right. If you read it allegorically, if you just read it, just for pick this thing out and pick that thing out of there and you don't take it seriously, and you don't read it in its context, you're going to come to some different conclusions. You might be like those guys that go, oh, you know, I've been reading my Bible and I think the resurrection's done. Which means, people, you better get your acts together because when we are resurrected out in the future, well, I think I'm going, but I don't know if you're going to make it. Seriously. And you don't think people are like that? There are ministers, there are people that are actually trying to scare people into being better by telling them, if you don't clean up your act, then when you stand at that judgment seat out there, well, you might not make it. And we looked at an example of that this morning. 
in the, in the early hour of men, prominent men here that are teachers in the United States as Bible teachers, that said, if you aren't completely sold out to follow Christ, your salvation is called into question. And that's why if we continue to read the Word of God for what it says, as we've been looking at over very quickly, I mean, this has been a real fast survey over how to read the Bible. Um, if you do it in that way, you come to the Word of God and you come away from it hopefully appreciating that God actually has laid out His plan and His course for you and I. And it gives us the ability then to respond to for us, not to, not to respond to them directly, but for ourselves to know how to respond here when I hear those people that are going to try to, shall we say, scare us into being good, things such as that, and have the right motivation, being equipped by the Word of God, rather than me going, oh, I don't want to go to hell, so I better clean up my life. Anyway, Father, we're thankful for the morning. We are so thankful that we actually can pick up the Word uh, these people, as they sit here and they listen to, to me talk about these things, they have the ability to pick up your word and examine all of this themselves and to put this to the test. And just because I've said it doesn't make it right, we have to come to the word of God and look at it and say, is this what you're selling us? Is this the value of the word of God? And if it is true, if, the word, if your word really does have this value, then help us to be people that would honor that in our daily lives by engaging with your words, looking at the word for ourselves, reading, just reading the word as we've been saying again and again, reading it and reading it and taking it in and then taking time to be together with other believers so that we might read the word together and examine it together. I'm thankful for these things. Thankful for your word and for your faithfulness in our lives and your faithfulness behind what you have told us in your word. Amen.